You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I've got a great guest today, uh, William B. Miller Jr., MD. He's the author of a book called The Microcosm Within, Evolution and Extinction in the Hologenome. Uh, it's a little bit of his background, which he'll get into more. As, uh, he's a physician, evolutionary biologist, and a lecturer on the new science of the hologenome, which we'll define, and uh, the impact of the microbiome on uh, evolutionary development. So his book came out in 2013. I'm making my way through it, but uh, we'll talk about that and a lot more. So, uh, Bill, thanks for coming. Well, thank you. That's a, great to be on the show. Yeah, tell me first a little bit about your background. You were a physician, or still are, and what, what was that experience like, and how did it morph into your current interests? I was very lucky in uh, going through school. Along the way, you learn things about yourself, and one of the things that I learned about myself is that I really couldn't picture myself as uh, in corporate America. I just, it just wasn't going to be for me. Um, I really wanted to be able to do something where I felt that I had some inter- independent action and I was very interested in science. That made it easy to be, consider becoming a physician because when I did become a physician, which is many decades ago, medicine was extremely unlike what it is today, which is now it is a corporate experience. But back then, uh, there was the model of the physician that opened his practice. He put out a shingle. He had a great deal of independence. And that attracted me just as much as the science and the concept of being of service to others, which was important to my family and has always been important to me. Uh, As it happens, when I was going through, I was going to be a surgeon. At the very time I was going through my initial training as an intern, I was training at a place that happened to receive the one of the first CT scanners in the world. Uh, After the Mayo Clinic... Uh, came where I trained. And there's just no way for me to recreate for the listeners exactly how exciting that was, because you were really seeing inside, not three dimensions, of course, it's two dimensions, but your brain could convert this to three dimensions very easily. And so as a a surgeon in training, I'm listening to my surgeon mentors, and you know what they're saying? (laughs) All we are now is technicians, because these machines are giving us the diagnosis. So uh, there was a, you know, that uh, that would be the end of their medicine. Well, they didn't think it was going to be the end. 
they felt that it was going to very dramatically change their role. Now, you have to remember that at the time I started, which was a different century, quite exactly, medicine was very hands-on. I was trained in palpation, in listening very careful to patient symptoms. There were all a certain sets of physical signs that you would use uh, in order to make a diagnosis of appendicitis, for example. This is all, I mean, never, nobody even knows them anymore because you use CT or ultrasound and you have almost 100% accuracy. In the time that I was training, you would do things called exploratory laparotomies. Basically, you'd open up the abdomen and you'd take a look around. And the dictum for appendicitis for people that, I mean, most people would not know this. When I was in training, you were supposed to be wrong about the diagnosis of appendicitis. Pretty frequently, the idea was you dare not let an appendix get to the point where it ruptures. So it was perfectly acceptable to open up people that didn't have appendicitis more than now and again at a certain percentage rate in order to avoid catastrophic circumstances. Well, now today, that's, of course, terrible because you have a completely precise means of diagnosis of appendicitis, which was first with CT and even now with ultrasound equipment, it's extremely accurate. And of course, MRI would do the same thing. Anyway, getting back to the major point here. So I ended up giving it a lot of thought what I would like to do. And I was extremely intrigued with this new imaging and its advantages. And I ended up going to that. So I've spent a, a long career, several decades as a radiologist and doing a lot of work in diagnosis and also in intervention basically sticking tubes and needles into people to try to make diagnoses or to repair certain things. It was a terrific career, and I, I was very privileged to have that. But it really all led in an odd way to my interest in evolutionary biology. And even when I look back, I wonder why I started to make certain connections that I did. But for example, as an imager, I was noticing that the patterns of disease were reliable. In other words, if there's a thing called pattern recognition in radiology, which means that you're looking for certain lights and darks and certain patterns that reflect anatomic changes, but it was deeper than that. Disease happens in recurring patterns, and so you form a differential diagnosis, and that differential is narrow for certain diseases and not as narrow for others. But the point, and I think your listeners will certainly uh, understand, certain things were reliably distinguishable because they formed a particular pattern. And some of those things were infectious disease. Certain infections form reliable patterns. And certain microbes cause certain patterns in certain places, in certain organs, that you could pick up with high reliability. And I started to wonder, why is this? And of course, the theory was that the microbes are circulating around, and they just happen to a spot. But that made no sense, because if they just happened, there would be no reliable patterns. And amazingly enough, nobody was thinking about these things but at least not in the way that I was thinking about them. So, What's an example of uh, a pattern you saw over and over? Well, toxoplasmosis in patients uh, that have toxoplasmosis, which is a parasitical disease, and it's not that common, but it forms a very characteristic pattern on computer tomography around the fluid spaces of the brain. Uh, you can almost always know that diagnosis uh, just from the computed uh, tomographic pattern. That's not an absolute truth, but it, it's certainly true also for example, we know in pneumonia that it's going to be uh, homophilus influenza very frequently. This is not going to cause a kidney infection, or well, very rarely, actually, it can, but it's really, really rare. Uh, that's going to be a different bug. And I started just to think about these things and wondering why they were that way. And at the same time, I was always interested in evolution. I think a lot of people are, and you don't have to be a scientist at all to be interested in evolution. And for some reason, I got the strange notion that infection was 
the common currency of all illness. And here's why. So often when you look at infectious disease, you can't tell it from metastatic disease on imaging equipment. Now, many times you can, but there are many circumstances in which the diagnosis, that it looks identical. And that struck me too. Why, you, why would when, that be? When you say metastatic, you mean cancer or other? Is there yeah, other elements yeah, yeah, metastatic? Cancer. Yeah, uh, no, metastatic cancer. And why would that be true? Why would they form the same patterns? Well, I mean, there are lots of theories and so on. But, you know, being a simple person like I am, yeah, I started to think of cancer as an infectious disease. And at the time I was doing that, starting these thoughts, this was an uncommon, almost heretical notion. Uh, and of course, now we understand that cancer is a common commonly caused by infection. There's a whole big list of them, cervical cancer, uh, by viruses and so on. People are being, by HPV, they're being immunized against it. Uh, in fact, it's almost uh, mandated that young women be immunized against uh, cervical cancer, which is a viral illness. Uh, we know that stomach cancer is related to H. pylori infection and so on. We, uh, and there are a, a number of theories developing that prostate cancer and breast cancer are infectious diseases also. Not proved, of course. But anyway, I started to think about those overlaps, and that led to my thinking unordered thoughts, my disordered thoughts about evolution and thinking, you know, it all has to be linked. There's got to be, there's order to the universe. There's order to biology. Evolution and infectious disease ought to be linked. And at the time, that was a very uncommon notion. I wrote a book in 2013 about it, but I spent 15 years thinking about it and researching it. And the pace of progress is very quick now in, in evolutionary science. And it was not like that. There was nothing, really nothing written about it back when I was starting to think about it, starting to try to put the patterns together. But let me talk about a girl named Sue, and then we can go on to more firm <laughs> okay. science. But a girl named Sue. And so why is that important? Well, I'm at a radiology conference in Chicago, one of my favorite cities, and I'm sitting through hours of lecture a day. And let me tell you, I just... I have limits, you know, it's not ADD, but I, you know, it's just a limit. How many well, everyone days, does. How many days everyone in a row, for how many hours you can be blitzed by slides and dry information. I mean, this is not Game of Thrones. This is pretty dry material. It's interesting. It's vitally important to me, actually, but there's a limit to everything. So I turn to a partner and I say, I'm playing hooky this afternoon at about three o'clock. I'm either going to go to the art museum or the field museum, you want to come. He goes, okay, which one do you want to go to? I said, well, I'd, let's go to the field museum. And so uh, playing hooky from my lecture, uh, he and I went, and I don't know who's listening has ever been to the field museum in Chicago. You ought to. When you enter that magnificent rotunda, as you walk in, there is one of the best dinosaur fossil specimens in the world. It's the Tyrannosaurus rex from Montana, Sioux, probably the most complete a number of bones of a Tyrannosaurus rex, and it is enormously impressive to look at. What I've been to the Museum of Natural History in New York, so I don't know how that. that yeah, so you you know ex you oh that's fantastic. You know what I'm talking about. So I'm standing in front of Sue, and I've given your listeners some of the background of some of these odd thoughts I've been having, and I'm noticing two things that really strike me. First, as an imager, I really I'm an anatomist. You know, I've got to be pretty good at anatomy because I spend my whole time looking at anatomy in order to make diagnoses, disease diagnoses. But I've got to understand the anatomy pitch perfect in order to do that appropriately. And I'm looking at this Tyrannosaurus rex, and now this is 60 million plus years ago, and I'm looking at the its bones. 
And several things occurred to me simultaneously, which really pertain to evolution exactly. First, I'm looking at the shape of the vertebrae and I'm thinking, wow, those vertebrae look a lot like my vertebrae. I'm looking at the pelvis and I'm thinking, given certain differences, which are not enormous, almost everything is alike. That The hip joint is an awful like a human hip joint. When you look at the femur bone, the general shape of it, if you could just use your imagination and shrink it down in an x-ray, I could take an x-ray of a T-Rex femur, shrink it down proportionately in size, and only make a number of relatively subtle changes, and I could make it look like a human femur. I mean, it's not exact. Please, you know, be creative here with me. It, but it bears an awful lot of resemblance, even to the muscular insertions, the protuberances. There are jagged little zones along the bone where the muscles insert. Those have to be very special, very special strong attachments, and they go by specialized type of things called Sharpie fibers. It, we don't have to get into it. But those crests and those ridges and all those things, boy, they're close. It is really interesting. And you look at uh, the crazy arms of a T-Rex, which make no sense. And if you've ever seen the picture of one, even, you realize that those arms are like ridiculous. They can't even, they can't really grasp anything. They can't actually oppose each other. I'm not sure they could wrap around where the, the claw ends could touch to really be facile for gripping and grasping. You could use them for tearing, but not really to grasp. And I'm so I'm you looking think at they, that. You think it could be remnants, I guess. You know, well, guess, yeah, I'll explain uh, where my thought process went because that's exactly uh, where we're going. So I'm looking at all those things, and I'm starting to sort of speak out loud. And then I saw one loud other thing: T-Rex roamed the United States and other areas of the world for at least six million years, and was almost unchanged during that entire six-year span. So I'm reading about evolution. And I'm being told that it's due to mutation and that there's, the mutations are happening all the time. I'm told that natural selection shapes what organisms are because only the most fit adaptations yield survival advantage. And yet, I'm looking at two arms that make no sense. It's certainly, if in a system of gradual change over millions of years, don't you think you'd get bigger? I mean, this is what I'm thinking back then. Wouldn't those arms get right. bigger? over time to fight for mates, to get more food. I mean, just to have two arms that are just looks way out of scale and silly. Now, obviously they had purpose, but you'd think that nature could do better. So I'm just sort of speaking out loud to my partner and he just looks at me and he says, you know, you're, just, you're a maniac. It just takes a lot of time. <laughs> and he just completely dismisses me. And he's a wonderful guy and we're still friends. But the point is, it was just like, you know, the, the proverb, proverbial, you put a bit in a horse's mouth. I'm just, I just could not let that go. And that was... Well, this uh, is by uh, far not the only example. You know, you'll have uh, a naked mole rat who still has an eye, but it's covered by skin. Or whales, you know, still have these prehensile feet or legs tucked in them. You know, uh, I right. mean, there's, there's many, many examples of uh, anatomy that wasn't discarded within the creature. Why? Why would that happen? It makes no sense if you're looking for efficiency and right. survival of the fittest. Well, the, there really is an answer, uh, and it's more complicated than it's going to sound right now because there, you have to understand the full pathways. But it isn't survival of the fittest. It, it isn't at all, and it really relates back to a more complicated system of evolution than was previously understood. And it's really, it is survival of the fit enough to survive. In other words, 
it sounds like a pat answer, but is it actually a true one? The T-Rexes that came into being, and they didn't come into being through this, the process of natural selection as, what you, as people have been taught, but it did come into being and it was fit enough to survive. So that's a huge difference between survival of the fittest and fit enough to survive because it, mm. it changes. The underlying dynamics can now change. Uh, so that's where I ended up where I am. I spent the next 15 or so years acquiring an education in evolutionary biology, which I had not had before. And a lot of the terminology was unfamiliar. And I, although I've, I, you know, I had a lot of science background, I had to learn a lot about genetics. And, and I was particularly interested in immunology as it relates to evolution, which no one was talking about. So you can even now look up, do web searches. I mean, any of your listeners can do web searches. And you will look up, if you look up uh, immunology in evolution, you will learn about how immune cells evolve to protect against pathogens, but you'll find almost nothing about how immunology could be a cause, a factor of evolution as a driving factor. So again, a, a big change. Yeah, I want to talk more about reference. that later, for sure, for sure. Yeah, so big changes of frame of reference, and and I think almost anyone listening would has had a similar experience. When you start getting odd ideas, they cascade into more oddity. You know, you never get less odd. Once you start to be odd, you can only get more and more odd. There's only one direction of oddness, and that's greater oddness. Well, and I'll give you a quick example. You know, I'm driving around years ago in New York in the winter, and I'm looking at the trees. They have no leaves, and they look like my lungs. They're just upside down, or I'm upside down to them. And then I see other structures that, again, look the same, like lightning. You know, as it branches, it looks like my lungs. Yeah. I think... Well, do, you know that it is odd, but it's been thought about, actually. Uh, it has even a name. It has two names. Uh, one is one that I use pretty often. I use them both in my own writing and with colleagues. Uh, one is called fractal reiteration, and the other is mosaic formulation. Both of these terms mean basically patterns repeat in nature. And that's very well known. And the reason for that is actually uh, twofold. One is efficiencies are in general repetitive patterns because the underlying physical forces act without exception on everything. So living things or inanimate things, they tend to have to do the same things because we must follow the same physical laws. In the end, uh, we must be efficient. In the end, we must adapt the most efficient flow states. It's true in uh, thermodynamics, and thermodynamics is one of those things that we have to adhere to. There has to be a certain parsimony. There has to be an equal and opposite reaction to anything it has to flow through us in just the same way it does through the physical world. And so all living things tend to have recurrent patterns, whether they're visible to the eye or not. And in fact, we have the world's most singular example of fractal reiteration which is the absolute common core of life, which is the cell. The cell is the universal unit. It is the base unit from which everything else emerges. Single cell organisms abound, but you and I are combinations of single cells put together in complicated pair, uh, networks that make us what we are. And one of the big changes in uh, evolution and with my interest in medicine, I came to it earlier than many. Now it's pretty common currency. But again, when I started thinking about it, it was quite unusual. And when I wrote the book on the whole of genome, the book that you're nice enough to mention from 2013, The Microcosm Within, uh, it was almost no literature behind it back then. 
Uh, so it was among the first. There were certainly some people that I could uh, cite. Uh, it was really not, I was not new to the, I was not uh, the first by any means to the idea. There was a man named Jefferson uh, in Australia uh, who thought of it because of agronomy. Uh, and there are uh, the Rosenbergs that are uh, in Israel and uh, Scott Gilbert in, in Pennsylvania. Some, some These are all brilliant people that, so no one comes up with anything that's absolutely new that doesn't have uh, feet, doesn't have legs within some pre-existing excellent idea. Every decent idea is an outgrowth of an excellent idea that preceded it. Oh, right. You're not going to be tongue-in-cheek, but you know, there's an evolution of thought, too. Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're going through the, one of the most dramatic and wonderful periods of time. This will be a brief digression, but, you know, it is easy to look at our political landscape and despair. I mean, whatever your political opinion is, you can look at the turmoil around the world. You read Google News, you read the newspaper. It's enough to just make your heart sink and you just wonder, I mean, this just has got to be terrible. It, it, I, let me just say, there has never been a better time to be alive than right now. This is it. This is the premier moment to be alive in the history of the world. No one would be smart to wish to change their the time of the era in which they lived for this moment. Your chance to be even and live a long life has never ever been better, certainly at least in developed in the developed world. Uh, than it is right now. And even in the undeveloped world, it was way worse then. Uh, we we are in a terrific period of time, and we still have terrible problems, but it's never been better than this. There is There are no good old days. And part of the reason I'm saying this is our pace of progress in the treatment of disease particularly is much faster than it was ever in the past. Every decade now puts us ahead of two, 300 years compared to the, the rate at which we were going before. One thing to you know, add more detail to that. So that's true. But at the same time, there's dogmas in certain industries that are, I wonder how that's going to play out, you know, like in climate change. There's people that are saying, oh, oh it's not happening. And then there's people that are saying, if you don't believe it's happening, you know, you should be silent. And then in evolutionary biology and evolution, there's the neo-Darwinists, the modern synthesis. They're saying anyone who doesn't agree with us are idiots and they're trying to be silent. So, how do you think those things play in this polarization of what should just be science? Well, it, let me just say they play in dramatically, and every single one of them is highly consequential. But again, it's important, I, th I believe, to have perspective. What is it like now compared to what it was before? Well, every one of our faults are no different than faults that existed before. So, for example, uh, the pace of although there is a dramatic uh, resistance to change that still exists, it's far less than in the past. And let me just offer this as a thought. Between the period 1554, and I'm an arbitrary number, 1554 and 1627, there might have been three generations, nothing would have changed. Nothing substantial would have changed in the lives of those people, not in mm -hmm. agriculture, not in medicine. It was humors, body humors, uh, a little bit in astronomy uh, because that was when it first began to flourish, uh, but most people could care less, not in religious life. Everything was identical. Musical forms hardly changed between the period. Everything, mm. what your father knew, the son knew, the grandchild knew. Um, mm. And the place of women didn't change one iota during that period of time. Now, you can't imagine. The three generations can hardly talk to each other. It's a new emerging problem. We have a pace of change that is so rapid now. 
that the body of information that each generation has is extremely different. If we think of it in the most uh, trivial sense, um, so there's a thing I used to do in my, our local newspaper, and I would look at whose birthday it is, mostly to see how old people were. And then it got to be a game. Could I reach a day where I would not know one name that was being mentioned of the famous people, but mostly they're, you know, they're TV people, mostly TV, movie, uh, and music. What, could I reach a day where I didn't recognize one name? And eventually I came pretty close. I mean, where the only name I could recognize was someone whose birthday would made them 67 or, you know, 75. But among the 20s and 20 year olds and 30 year olds, most of the 40 year olds, country singers and rock stars, and I didn't know one name. My point is not that I'm singularly ignorant and not that I'm not interested in new trends. It's just that if the generations separate according to very strong uh, cultural differences, that wasn't so throughout history. Yes, of course, the young have always rebelled against their elders, but it is now we don't even share the same platforms. There's someone that's 18 now hearing a, a song that we know has been remade 10 times over the past 50 years, and they think it's new. You know, versus uh, well, I mean, you you know, someone now that's 70 that doesn't know nor care about the latest stars. It goes both ways, yeah, not yeah. only that, yeah, absolutely. Again, another trivial example is if uh, my son wanted to organize an event, and what he was going to do was put together a movie night. And the idea was you're going to get a movie that's famous that maybe not people, not that many people have seen. So he was thinking you'd have to look for some names that are not that well known. No, he could use Gone with the Wind because among his age group, which is about 30, almost none of them had ever seen Gone with the Wind. And a lot of them had not even heard of it. Now, for my age, you know, my parents, gone, my, for my parents, Gone with the Wind was the most famous movie in history. And for my age, even, you know, obviously everyone I know, my age, uh, which is something like 180, uh, has seen the film <laughs> usually multiple times, multiple times. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about things that are trivial, but science is progressing at almost the same rate. Here's the wonderful thing I had in my career. From the time I began my training to the day that I actually left medicine to start my new career, my second act, which I'm lucky to have, I almost did nothing that I had learned, been trained to do in my training. Almost every single thing I did all day long was was a product of a new technology and then something I had to have learned along the way. What a privilege. But yet, what a privilege. Here's something that nature can teach us. You know, there's a reason why, again, there's self-similarity. My lungs, my blood vessels, trees, lightning, etc. Um, nature contains within it all its history, it seems to. And uh, the more we pay attention to history, I mean, history is becoming more and more important, I think the faster change happens because you lose all these lessons that you could have had if you don't look Correct. at it. So sure, yep. we're in yep. love with the new technology. It's great, but it all has its roots in history. And if you don't understand any of that, you'll miss out and you'll waste all this time reinventing when you don't need to. Absolutely. Well, one of the great places where ch change is happening at this extremely accelerated rate, which I regard as a great positive and, uh, you know, the cultural things we were talking about uh, are very interesting asides to me, but, one of the things where change is is super duper rapid is in understanding our microbiome. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with the microbiome, it's talking about bugs. I'm talking about germs, germ bugs. Those are the trillions and trillions of bugs that are in us and on us. And the, the number of these that are in you and me um, is variously estimated at the minimum 38 trillion and the maximum about 100 trillion. 
Now, our own body cells are around 30 trillion. So we're outnumbered by our microbes. So, for example, when I and, and so that has to completely change the way we see health and even our humanity. Let me give you an example. So when I look in the mirror, I see Bill Miller. And, and of course, the first thing I say is, George Clooney, eat your heart out. I am the best looking guy in the world. I mean, who, how could I doubt that? I see it. Anyway, what I do see, and let me assure your listeners, I, George Clooney has nothing to fear from me. Anyway, so I see this image in the mirror. It's a one thing. It's a one person image. And I look at that and I, say, and I feel like a one thing. I don't feel like anything more than a one thing. It is a complete illusion. What are we actually? We are in a, an unbelievably complicated confederacy of multiple forms of life. My own Bill Miller cells, they are personalized. There are no, there's no other person that has my exact genetic and extra genetic, uh, I mean, extra uh, genomic, but genetic complement. The exact combination of my cell is unique in the world. But there's an invisible pairing that is an absolute partner. It's not just a hanger on, an absolute partner. Those are the trillions of microbes that are part of me. And what we're learning in this accelerated pace of change that we've started to talk about is that when I went to medical school, first of all, no one even bothered to think of them. Microbes were simply pathogens. They're only there to hurt you. And then there is a curiosity thing called a symbion. It means a, a microbe that gets along. It, it serves us in some way and we serve it. Symbiosis. But it was considered a real rare. Fish with, a, with a sea anemone. Yeah, or microbes that help you uh, get B12. I mean, we understood that there certain microbes served a function, but they were just in the side. And, oh, I mean, we could do without them anyway. And, you know, the hangers on. They're there because they're there. And nobody really, really ever gave them any thought. That, well, how did we think about them? Danger. Mm. Our job was to eradicate them. They were enemies. They were pathogens. And that's all I was ever taught. Well, now we know completely differently. These microbes are absolutely vital to us. We are a combined organism. So the term that people are using, uh, the common one and the stuff that I write is holobiont, mean, holo meaning all, or genome, hologenome, all bionts, all living things, a, com a combination, or superorganism. The superorganism can mean variable things, but what it should mean is the idea is that we are a combined form of life and we are obliged to be. So these microbes, they can't live the way they want to without us. We are their best habitat, and we cannot do without them. If we were germ-free, we would be dead. So, so you're going through the roles that, you know, people thought traditionally microbiome or microbes, only one role, dead, trying to kill you. But one Correct. is a symbiotic role, you know, for instance, where they produce serotonin in the guts or, like you said, B12. Another is the role that people are familiar with, you know, try to kill you. What are the other roles that microbes can have with us? Well, they are critical uh, throughout our metabolism, but they, and, and I'm actually writing up something about this now, but they really function significantly in, in our growth and development, our, our developmental milestones. They are critical factors in our appetite, what's called our diurnal cycle. So satiety, appetite is satiety. When, I'm, when do I feel full? When do I feel hungry? What is my, if I'm a lead person or I'm a fat person, do my microbes have a say in it? They certainly do. They have a powerful say in it. This is stuff that I was, of course, never taught in medical school, you know, back in the 18th century when I went. It was, it was considered ridiculous. But now what we're learning in this cascade of new knowledge that we're getting is that these microbes have an enormously 
powerful role. And we've only just on the very beginning of understanding the interstices, the networking between the, uh, those microbes and our own being. And I'll, we'll talk more in depth about some of these things, but I can promise your listeners that these, this research over the next 15 or so years is going to start to yield terrific results for people. A lot of those diseases that have afflicted us, there's going to, what we're finding out is that the common denominator runs through the microbial world. It doesn't mean that the microbes are the cause of every disease. But disease in a human being and, and, and all other animals runs through the common denominator of this partnership with our microbes so that disease is set off if microbial patterns are unbalanced or our own cells, if they get unbalanced, they can create a reaction within the microbial sphere, which gives them an unbalance, which then reverberates back to us to further unbalances. And we're only beginning to understand each of these. So our behavior, our moods, Depression has some linkage. It's still ill-defined. The research is still new, and it hasn't been deeply validated yet. But there is a lot of research that does indicate that our microbial composition determines some aspects of our human behavior. Uh, and then another thing that uh, completely contradicts everything that I was taught. So when I was uh, in medical school, and then all through my practice, uh, really, the dictum was absolute that certain areas of the body were sterile. So, of course, physicians understood that there were lots of germs inside the, our gut. They were there because, because they're, they're feeding on the fibers that are, are part of the nutrients that we take in and they're hangers on. And they might assist a little bit in digestion, but it's not a big deal. Um, I was taught, of course, that the womb is sterile, that a fetus is sterile, that amniotic fluid, the fluid that surrounds a baby in the womb is sterile. Uh, here's a common thing I would say to a patient, uh, well, we've gotten back the results of your urinalysis and uh, your infection is cured and your urine is sterile. I said that all the time. It's just completely wrong, but I said it all the time. And here's what we know now. No place is sterile. What was I told about? I was told that the brain, spinal cord, the fluid around these uh, vital organs, sterile. Absolutely, because there was a blood-brain barrier. And any microbe that could even be circulating through, only the pathogens could get through. The brain was sterile, the microbes, the, the spinal cord was sterile. No, it's not true. No place is sterile. That's why I asked you offline. So people, even people that know a bit about the microbiome, they think traditionally, oh, we've got a big colony there. And then if they know a little bit more, they know there's a separate colony in the mouth and separate one in the anus and et cetera. Um, but you're saying, and I asked you offline that, Bacteria are present throughout our entire body. There's no place in the body where they're not there. No place in the body. It's entirely free of microbes being either bacterial or chorea, which is a different kingdom, uh, a domain, I mean, and, or and the viral. So even all this information that we're getting about the trillions of microbes, it's an undercount because the virome is so enormous. And they, uh, the vir our viruses, we, are, we have been taught, I have been taught to understand viruses purely as pathogens, purely and exclusively as pathogens. Well, here's what we know now. They're vital co-companions in development. In our, they, are, they are vital for our health, just as they are, they definitely cause terrible afflictions. It's a balance, and, and we've only had explored, we only were aware of one part of this balance. So... Everything is changing very rapidly, and all of this is a very good change. For, for, for once, there's good news. 
finding out about these relationships, which we are only beginning to explore in depth, is of extreme importance. And then getting back to evolution, what we're finding out is that the viral realm is a major part of the evolutionary narrative. That is, it's much more important than these random genetic mutations, which all of evolutionary biology has had this multi-decade romance with, believing that for generation after generation of, of evolutionary biologists, and even of a majority today, still would answer the science test question, what causes evolution? They'd say random genetic mutations cause variations and natural selection drives evolution. These are, these are incorrect statements. Yeah, and just to let you know, you know, I've done many podcasts on this, and so I don't even want to belabor that, that how wrong that is, and how misinformed and incomplete that is. Just take it as uh, the listeners now will know if they've listened to any other podcast, that's so incomplete as to be uh, not even fairly descriptive as to what's really going on. Right. But, and again, it doesn't mean that they have no influence. That's not what I'm saying. I, just so we we can finish this, just so I clarify. I'm not saying natural selection is not important in evolution. No, it is for reasons that are different than have been understood previously. And I'm not saying that random genetic mutations don't occur and are not consequential. Of course they are. But again, the relative importance of them is undergoing a very important reappraisal. Well, one quick thing about the virome, you know, I spoke to a while back, George Church and also Luis Villarreal about the, you know, the virome. And I didn't realize all creatures have viruses that have integrated their information into our DNA itself. So we have dozens or hundreds, I guess they call them endogenous uh, retroviruses that are part of our DNA, part of our makeup, and have guided our evolution and the evolution of all kinds of other creatures. That's crazy to think about. Well, it's not only crazy, it's true. Uh, I mean, for example, the placenta, which is, you know, the lifeblood of mammalia, of mammals, those are the product of at least four critical retroviral insertions that allow specialized cell types and sicial cells that can form the syncytial trophoblast, which is an essential element of, of the placenta. It's unimportant what, what these cells exactly are or called or anything. But the point is that these viral incursions, infectious events, and that's the, the part that I want to stress for your listeners, it's infectious disease that drives evolution, not random mutations. Why? Because the, the infectious disease dynamics control whether the viruses get in or not. It's immunology that governs our ability to determine what the co-partnership levels are that exist. So all evolution is co-development between the microbial world and ourselves. We are the product of that compact. That compact is governed through immunology. And this is how that cycle, it is this cycle, which is really infectious disease dynamics that actually drives evolution and extinction. And uh, those that are yep. further interested uh, can read the book, but we, and we can talk at, at any depth that you wish, but in, a, yep. in, a, in the best mini-capsular form, it's not genetics, a standard uh, random mutations that cause the variations that yield, that can be filtered by natural selection. It is infectious disease dynamics. It, are, it is these insertions over evolutionary time that matter the most. And so that explains why some creatures can stay unchanged for hundreds of millions of years. So take horseshoe crabs. Oh, actually, one question here. I understand that it plays a huge role, you know, infection, and it drives evolution. I understand why you're saying that now. But 
what about environmental pressures causing epigenetic oh, changes, which lead well, us yeah. towards, you know, maybe a new species? I mean, isn't that a big part of the puzzle too? You know, the oxygen levels in the environment being nil and then coming up to a high level and then going down and coming up. I mean, didn't that cause tremendous pressure and changes in organisms and, and evolution as well? Yes, absolutely correct. Uh, there's no question. I like to use the term, the complementarity between the organism and its environment. And as an important codicil of what I'm saying, the environment that we're talking about includes all of those microbes that are in the environment that are exerting their effect as part of it. Yes, of course, cold temperatures and climates that vary matter. Uh, areas that get more sun versus areas that get less sun and so on, they all matter. But of those environmental impacts, and including epigenetic changes, of those, the most consequential are infectious events. These are infectious in, in ways that are not typically thought of. We, we tend to think of a, of a microbe that invades and starts to become a real pathogen and take over body systems and destroy us. But infectious events proceed along the levels of partnerships. There are infectious events going on all the time, infectious exchanges between uh, microbial populations and our own cells that are just part of the ongoing partnership, that, but they ship the balance. Speciation is an infectious event. So you can make the statement that uh, evolution is infectious disease dynamics if you restrict it particularly to the concept of it being related to speciation, because you have to confer reproductive isolation. And obviously that can't happen un unless there's some genetic or cytoplasmic incompatibility, and that can only occur as an immunologic event. So one of the things that almost no one talks about, but I cover in my book, is you, you really can't have speciation without talking about immunological incompatibilities. I mean, after all, why can't two species reproduce? Mechanically, a sheep and a dog could get it on, right. but of course that doesn't work. And the reason that doesn't work is not because the parts don't fit in, as creepy, as disgusting as that might sound to talk about. Uh, I hope that people don't think I'm a pervert for saying this, but uh, it's not mechanical. And it's not even, you know, a function of, you know, sexual drive, because animals are crazy and so are humans. What it is a function of is actual reproductive incompatibility. That's a genetic chromosomal incompatibility. That's a cytoplasmic incompatibility. Cytoplasm being the stuff inside the cells, that's the fluid inside the cells that, that occupies a part of the, of the interior of the cell inside of the cell membrane, the, cell outer, the outer wall of the cell. And all of these are participants in the splitting of cells, the joining of cells in reproduction between the egg and sperm. And there's got to be compatibility. If it's incompatible, it's an immunological event. And Isn't it interesting that uh, the organisms are informed, their sexual drive is informed, you know, the, the sheep knows not to, it somehow is just not attracted to the dog for the most part, maybe in a few extreme examples it is, but, you know, people are not attracted to mate with animals, again, except in a few extreme examples, but isn't it interesting that, you know, we know we have this knowledge or this feeling on who to mate with and who not to mate with. Yes. And uh, it, what's, what's happening, it's interesting that, again, we don't have an answer. I mean, you're asking a really deep question. And I don't want to make it seem like the answers are, uh, that are, are well known, but I will, I will offer 
an interesting aside, which is the new sophisticated experiments on the um, microbiome. And let me finish this thought, and then I'm going to skip to why we found out what we did about the microbiome and why it was invisible up until recently. Uh, first, what we are finding out are some almost kind of creepy associations. This is still new stuff, and it's not been really highly validated yet. But it is almost certain that our individual microbiomes influence our mate selection. Almost certain. And and I can't tell you that you know I'm going to run the the new dating app you know microbiome profile <laughs> dating app you know but because I would be rejected by everybody you know I'd be <laughs> your microbiome Speaking is too of. disgusting to to have a mate. Uh, it's just, you know, we, we used to talk about chemical attraction and pheromones and things like that. Well, we're finding now the scientific basis behind how these things are produced. The chemical attraction could be maybe that the microbiome that we share is also a reflection of our, ourselves having a certain compatibility, which we sense intuit because we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand self-reference. We don't understand intuition. Um, and there are a million theories, and I've written about those, some theories of it myself, but um, it could be that subliminal understanding is because we have means of sensing the, the mate compatibility of the microbiomes that we share. Uh, it sounds astounding, and it sounds ridiculous, but it's not. Uh, we we perceive... Pheromones, you know, the smell of, uh, oh, that person smells good, or they have a nice perfume on. I mean, it's the crude way that we're sensing them. You know, using our nose, we're sensing molecules that are coming off of them. So why couldn't we sense molecules coming off of them that we can't identify as a perfume, but somehow we're sensing literally their smell and we like that, you know? Well, in fact, they're running those experiments. I, I mean, they're doing creepy, not creepy, but interesting studies where they get men to exercise. They have in, in T-shirts, they have them uh, give their T-shirts over and then they have women smell them and rate them according to uh, attractiveness or, or, or disgust. And, you know, what's the smell? Is it good or bad to you? And they're finding uh, some substantial overlaps between microbiomes of, of female attraction and males that have a coincident microbiomes. Again, this is preliminary stuff. And, you know, we all know that reports come out and contradict earlier things. So let's see how it shakes out over the next decade or so. But it's, there are some very interesting things that are happening on the horizon, uh, even in the in sense of cellular life itself. What we're learning is the communication patterns of cells between cells, cell-cell communication, and cell-microbe communication has been uh, completely misunderstood. It's much, much more abundant than we ever understood before. Microbes, for example, chatter together all the time. They're highly sociable. So your listeners would probably think, well, microbes are stupid. I mean, cells are dumb. I mean, how, what could they know? I mean, you know, they don't know Shakespeare. Well, they don't. But you know what they know? They know cellular life, and they are very good at being cells. And that is intelligence. So how Hawking's was great, uh, Stephen Hawking. He had a fertile mind, and mm. his definition of intelligence was very direct. Intelligence is the ability to adapt. And almost no one has ever said anything more intelligent about intelligence than, my, than Hawking's <laughs> in that statement. Because adaptation is problem solving. Yeah, that's right. True. And how do we problem solve? We communicate. And so what are cells have, our cells have intelligence. Bacteria have Absolutely. intelligence. Absolutely. Here's a question I wanted to ask you. So the thinking on viruses and bacteria and et cetera, when people thought just bad, they infect you, 
you know, that's not, uh, there's no intelligence there. It's just this one action or there's very little intelligence. But what you're saying is cells, bacteria, viruses, et cetera, they have a playbook, actually. They can be symbiotic. They can integrate themselves into another creature. They can attack it. They can, um, you know, be cooperative with it in, in certain ways where they're not, where they're dependent upon each other, but they're still remaining separate. I mean, it seems like they have a playbook and therefore they have preference and choice and they have an ability to, uh, to have strategy. To me, that's intelligence. It's yep. strange. I, I, I think, think about, did. when I think about bacteria, why are some, why have some integrated themselves into our cells, like the mitochondria or the placenta? Why have some, why does some attack us? Why does some hang out in our gut or wherever and feed off what we feed? It's, we, you know, how did they make those choices and why? Well, these are, first of all, I want to say that you've expressed it beautifully. Uh, you just really put it together, the, the line of thinking together exactly properly, Rich. Uh, I was taught, uh, and all scientists knew as a fact, that cells are basically the mental imaging was they, they were automata. They, they just, they were reactive. In fact, I'm old enough to recall when scientists truly believed that only humans really were thoughtful, only humans had valid emotions. All other animals just react to things. Plants just bend to the light. It's called tropism. It's as if the light was drawing them and they were just like robots to the light. It's like a tractor beam concept. Mm. And dogs, uh, you know, they just reacted by hunger, Pavlovian uh, reflexes. They were, they were reflexive animals. They were not reflective. They were reflexive to very different things. Well, I've got to tell you, those were totally incorrect notions. And now all scientists understand differently. There's no one who owns a dog that doesn't understand that a dog is not intelligent. There was all through human history, we would never, I mean, well, certainly in, the, in Victorian circumstances, in Victorian science, no animal was regarded intelligent except man. It was a contradiction in terms. Only man had intellect. Only man had self-reference. Only, only a man knew, or a woman, you know, a mankind, understood abstract thoughts. Only humans problem solve. Well, we look back and we, we laugh. How could anybody believe something that was that stupid? Well, because it wasn't stupid. It was just the evolution of thought that you'd brought up before. It takes time for people to get accustomed to new ideas. There's a cycle of thought and it takes time for people to get to wrap their brains around new things. So certainly people began to understand that animals are intelligent. Dolphins are intelligent. Whales are intelligent. Uh, and then we became a little bit more informed and we began to understand that plants have enormous forms of intelligence. They just exhibit it in plant ways, not animal ways. And now we're at the next threshold in which we now know through, through careful experiments. And now, so this is not one of those things that, uh, you know, the validation is not in. This science is in and firm. All cells are intelligent. Cells are ingenious. In cellular ways, of course, they're not thinking the way you and I are thinking, and they don't communicate as we do, but they do communicate abundantly, and they problem-solve extremely well in their sphere. In fact, how well do cells, how, how well do bacteria solve problems? Well, I can answer that directly. Life on Earth began about 3.8 billion years ago, and we don't know exactly what the first forms of life were, but let's just say they're almost certainly what are termed prokaryotes. Those are bacteria. These are cells without a nucleus. Our cells, which we deem more sophisticated, but they're really not. They're just a different form, are called eukaryotes, which is just a fancy scientific term, which means 
cells that have an internal nucleus, internal organelles, internal compartments. So in bacteria, the genetic material is distributed throughout the cytoplasm, the fluid inside the cell. In eukaryotes, our kinds of cells, my Bill Miller cells, my genetic material is inside a nuclear envelope, a compartment inside the cell proper. You know, we, t we tend to think of it as being protected, but that's, that's a human notion, which probably has little sense. Anyway, what do we know about, let's say that bacteria for 3.8 billion years ago, they certainly bacteria as we know them today, almost exactly as we know them today are, there is evidence for them for, from 3.4 billion years ago. And we think life began a earlier than that. So we have uh, stromatolites. These are uh, fossils of bacterial societies. So bacteria form together into colonies that are called biofilms. These are highly complicated social networks of bacteria. They're working together to solve problems together. How do they do that? Through communication, through abundant communication, which has been termed by certain scientists as chatter. And they make collective decisions. It's got a special name, quorum sensing. But the end result is they put themselves together in this colonial form quite frequently. And they do that for nutrition, for energy efficiency, and for common defense. In other words, awfully alike humans when we put together cities and societies for efficiencies, individual advantage. What, what is each bacteria doing in that colony? It is maintaining what's called its homeostatic balance, fancy terms. It, it just means they're trying to maintain a steady state of this is what is good for me. This is enough calcium. This is enough potassium. This is enough energy for my, for my cells. This is how I can sustain myself. A cell has a microbe, a bacteria, has a state of preference. I know this will sound weird to the people that are listening, but it is a fact. Cells well, it, it wants to keep itself alive. So it does. Yes, that? and but what's also with, in a with that? in a preferential state. What is a, what is their preferential state? You know, it's bourbon and you know high high grade whiskey. No, it's their state. Whatever. Again, we've made a terrible mistake in science by assuming that things have to be according to our frame of reference. But our frame of reference is only our own. That's why we misapprehend animal intelligence so dreadfully. Animals yeah. are not trying to solve problems in the same way we do. Here's an interesting experiment. I just ran myself. I love bananas. And I'm, I, I like bananas. I eat a lot. I'm, I eat several a week. And I'm always frustrated because throughout my, throughout my whole life, I've taken off bananas at the stem and you know, try to, to peel them, right? I think most people that are listening will do that. It's our normal reaction. The stem looks like a handle. And I yank on that thing, and sometimes it works real well, and a lot of times it works badly, and I'm mushing up the top, and I'm getting annoyed. So oh, I happen to be watching. Much better. Yeah. I know. So I happen to watch a video on on apes, and I'm starting to watch them eat bananas, and every single one of them takes it from the other end. So I tried it. It's much better. It's so much easier. It's just our human problem solving a bias was to make a certain assumption according to our uh, what humans tend. What our experience has told us is in general, if you can grasp a handle, you'll get a better tug, better force of tug. But an ape doesn't yeah. have a human sensibility. Uh, you know, dogs solve problems in ways that we never can. Dogs can smell cancer cells. That's a problem solving yeah. thing for a dog. <laughs> Humans can't. So who's more intelligent? Um, the answer well, is, I, I think there's, we, uh, we are differently yeah, intelligent, I, differently. Yeah, I think, I think that's, well, 
a couple of things come to mind. So, yeah, just like different people have different intelligences, different preferences. You know, some people are auditory or kinesthetic or visual learners. Well, I think people have all kinds of intelligence. You know, uh, Michael Jordan has an intelligence in sports that I don't have. Um, certain artists have intelligence in that way. You know, uh, certain people have intelligences, let's say, in physics or in science. So nothing wrong with it. They're all just different types of intelligences. So I think animals have, yeah, a different kind of intelligence. They may have, a dog may have an olfactory intelligence that, well, they do, that surpasses us unbelievably. I wondered, what is it like to smell like a dog? Do you get a visual representation or a feel of the gradients of different smells? And, you know, there's all these intelligences out there that we don't, we just discount, you know, machines, artificial intelligence. It's not artificial human intelligence, it's machine intelligence, which actually appears to be its own separate intelligence. So why not bacterial intelligence or viral or, yeah, why not? Uh, and the answer is there is no why not. The answer is that we just have to learn to accept that this is one of the things that cells can do. And this, this concept of state of preference, the concept of cells being intelligent and all microbes being intelligent, uh, and our virus is intelligent. Well, yes, they, they have some form of intelligence. Again, it may be very, very different even from other microbes. It is not clear that viruses are alive. Here's why. Uh, it's going to get a little complicated, but you can define life through self-reference. That is, do cells have an awareness of themselves? Now, they don't have to be able to do, to do the mirror test of, of self-awareness, but are they aware of their own status? The answer is sure. There's no question that a microbe is aware of its own status because it will react purposefully. It will problem solve in order to enact a better circumstance for itself. So that's self-awareness in, in the general sense, as opposed to the abstract self-awareness is why am I alive and why am I living and uh, you know, I can, we don't know that one bacteria could absolutely knows how to differentiate itself from the next bacteria in the same way that I know how to separate myself according to my self-identity from another human. But if you, if you regard self-reference as proper, properly, it's self-awareness of status, of equanimity, of equipoise, of preference. Absolutely, microbes have that. Do viruses, I mean, bacteria, archaea, fungi, yes, they all have that. Do viruses? This is an important question because the virome is the largest of all the domains. And, it, and even it could almost be argued that the most consequential of all because it's the vital intermediary amongst all of the cellular types that we've mentioned. My, my cells with the nucleus, bacterial cells, we communicate with, with microbes and they communicate with us according to many different pathways. There are chemical signals, there are electromagnetic signals, there are there may even be uh, soliton waves. This is new research and not, not much is known about it. Certainly, cells communicate with each other through cell adhesion and through, uh, through mechanical transduction. They push, they pull, they tug, shear forces. All of these things count in that world. Wow. Uh, but one other way that cells communicate is they trade genetic material, horizontal genetic transmission, and viruses or viral particles, subviroid particles, are a vital means of communication. It could go right through the, the membranes, or it can go through, uh, think of them as like little spaceships in the extracellular matrix there. They, they form little vesicles. They're special names. We don't need to get into them. Uh, and they will transfer between 
microbe to microbe, microbe to our own cells, ongoing all the time. This is a vital communication traffic that is gone going all the time, which has been invisible to us until recently. So are viruses alive? It's a close call. Uh, there's, there are academics on both sides that I'll fight you on it. Um, here's what I do know. Let's not get stuck on that argument because these are the vital things that we need to know is whether we declare them living or not, what can they do that we didn't understand? They can cooperate. They can problem solve to their own limited way. And they, so for example, viruses, and I think everyone's aware, take HIV. Some people get infected with HIV and they get sick real fast and die. Others can get infected by HIV and it hides, hides sometimes for a decade or more, two decades before it becomes AIDS. Who's making that decision? Well, it's not, it's not the person. It's the virus is making a decision according to its own proclivities, its own needs, its own needs to reproduce, and it's choosing its time. It's strategic. I mean, I know this sounds foreign to people that are listening, but this is our world. We're beginning to understand exactly how much more complex it is than we thought before. You know, what's funny is, as, as you were talking, all of a sudden that thought of um, the loss of habitats and animals, and I thought, oh no, we've lost all the the microbiomes of all the creatures that have been you know, that have gone extinct and all the plants and all that information. I, I felt the pang of loss for a minute because there's so much more information than we even could have begun to think of that has been lost because of things like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But the good news, again, uh, to stress, because I think it's important for people to understand, we are really just now beginning to very actively explore these things. And boy, is it going to make all the difference in, in the future. So let's go on a little bit uh, extra on, on uh, this idea of intelligence, cellular intelligence, states of preference. So what does all this have to do with evolution? Well, this is where the, the major change in evolution is occurring uh, through efforts of uh, people such as myself and others that are, are beginning to understand that the narrative that we had before, which was an enormously important building block. I mean, we could never be where we are going to go or where we are now without all the terrific work that was done before those of us that are working to change things. Um, but we are definitely at a, uh, a, a new threshold. And, and here's where we stand. Everything that we've talked about is prelude. Uh, if you want to understand evolution, the two major themes that we've had up to this moment. First, that the nature of the human living circumstance of being a, a hollow biont, a superorganism, is enormously different than we had understood previously. And secondly, we've just talked about how every single one of our cells and every single microbe, or at least every cellular microbe, is intelligent. So what does all this mean? Well, it means this. Because cells are intelligent, because cells are problem solvers, because they can communicate abundantly, they can engineer. So importantly, cells measure. Because they can assess their state, the state that they're in, that their homeostatic balance, they can assess right. that state, that's measurement. That measurement enables engineering. Think of it, the analogy is useful. Um, humans can measure, humans can engineer, we can deploy to those tools, the tools of communication and measurement to build cities, cells engineer. So I talked about earlier how we're these enormous collaborations of life. These collaborations are 
they form tissues, and those tissues are vast arrays of our own personal cells and microbes that work together. And the best way for the listeners to, to do it is think of it like an ecology. It, think of a rainforest. I live in the desert. I live in the Phoenix area. Think of a, a desert habitat. It's an ecology with all sorts of vital players. Everybody is depending on everybody else. People are used to thinking right. about, the, about it in macro terms. So, and, and, and people can look at a city and understand its complexities. Well, cells have their own intelligence and cells solve problems in their own way. And how do they solve problems? By building tissue ecologies. And then as these tissue ecologies link together, they become us. We are products of cellular intelligence and cellular engineering. That cellular intelligence is both my personal cells and my microbes. And in partnership, they create a habitat that called Bill Miller. And I'm, I must tell you, I'm very high-priced real estate. I'm, you know, I'm a pied-a-terre level. Uh, <laughs> and there's, no, there's not one microbe that doesn't want. There's not one microbe I know that doesn't want to live in my habitat. So, and I've got very high prices. So. I know this is a very difficult series of thoughts for most people who are unaccustomed to, to going to thinking about it, because we've covered so much new ground today. But basically, if you want to get the thrust of, of why you are existing as an evolutionary product, the answer is you are the product of intelligent cells that have engineered you to be the you, and natural selection has assured you are complementary to the environment. You are fit enough to survive. Well, I guess that's where we'll uh, we'll end it for right now. We're we're probably going to do another one of these shortly. But um, how can people even start to get uh, a grasp of some of the concepts that we've talked about? What are some ways for them to uh, you know to get into it so they're not just awash in all kinds of thoughts and just confused as to you know as to where to go from here? If you'll allow me to say, the best thing to do. Uh, I've written a book. It's complicated. I won't deny it. Um, but if for those people that are really interested and uh, a patient, everything that I talked about is explained very carefully and, and progressively in a progression within that book. It's called The Microcosm Within, Evolution and Extinction in the Hollow Genome, but The Microcosm Within, Bill Miller, and that's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or through my publisher, Universal Publishers. Uh, beyond that, uh, you can go ahead and go to the web, which is like a universal brain. Uh, everybody knows that. And uh, they, can, you, they can look up superorganism, or they can look up cellular intelligence, uh, and they can start to get the background, the two essential bottom line background elements. And for cellular engineering, now you've got to get up to the scientific literature. But uh, I think that most of the listeners would be most interested in trying to understand how is it best, how could, how, what is this going to mean to me? What, the bottom line for most people is, yeah, I'm interested in the science, but what is it going to mean for my life? And the answer is um, we're beginning to learn that we can probably productively manipulate intelligent microbial life. That is, we can boost our microbiome, which there's a large growing body of evidence that we can boost that microbiome and provide some incremental health benefits. And, and you can go to the web and start to look um, through the, the web uh, and research about how uh, probiotics and prebiotics can be used. Prebiotics are fibers that feed good microbes. Probiotics are extra booster doses of good microbes. There's pretty good scientific evidence. In fact, there's excellent scientific evidence to date. It has not yet been contradicted, but to date, there's excellent scientific evidence that seem to point that 
there are boosters that you can use that are productive for you. And you have to experiment <clears throat> for yourself. It's important to be your own scientist. Um, if you, you're having problems with fatigue, you're having problems with uh, depression, you're having problems with, uh, certainly with bowel problems, try one of these products um, and prebiotic, a probiotic, and see whether it doesn't work for you. Uh, approach it with an open mind. Uh, the research is there and it's growing. And I think uh, excellent products are on the market right now and uh, new ones will come to market over time. Uh, so I, I think that's where things are going. Yeah, and I would tell people, you know, my own journey and learning about science and, and the microbiome and all these things, you know, I'm, I'm, I make it my business to interview hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and companies, but I still had a lot of, do a lot of self-discovery and reading and learning. And at first it could be very overwhelming. There's all these terms you don't know and concepts you don't understand, but if you keep at it and you keep asking questions, eventually you, you go from understanding 5% of something to 50% to 80%. You mean I get to 100%? But, exactly. You know, I've, I still I've agree with to the just, point now where I can read papers and I can understand 80% of them. And I think, oh, wow, it's working. <laughs> no, I, I, comp so, I think that's such an important thing that you've said. I, even in my own experience, when I started to flip from the medicine that I was doing into evolutionary biology, I mean, it was a blizzard of new terms. It's, it, you know, it's almost like asking uh, someone who's been a dancer to, to study physics. It's just a totally different discipline. And so, uh, but what, what happened? I, well, I kept at it with some patience. And just as you said, by small increments, you learn one term after another, it becomes familiar, then things begin to fall into place that didn't, you just couldn't get through it before. It didn't make any sense. And then all of a sudden it begins to make sense. And, and with respect to the microbiome, a lot of the things that are written are very good. And you can go ahead and in a relatively short time, really start to feel as though you have enough material behind you to start to make some decisions for your own life. Well, Bill, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And um, I don't know if you want people to reach out to you or to at least, you know, they can get your book. Is there any way they could uh, reach out if they have questions or is the book the best way to do it? Sure. Uh, the book's excellent. Or they can go to my website, uh, www.themicrocosmwithin.com. And lastly, uh, I have a pretty uh, well-followed Twitter feed, uh, which gives a lot of scientific information uh, on evolution, but also just stuff that interests me, uh, space, uh, science, a lot about uh, the microbiome, uh, a little bit about uh, paleontology, um, at Bill Miller, MD on Twitter. That's great, Bill. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Rich. I enjoyed it very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. 
You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.